Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. In this episode, we'll be exploring the relationship between time and political theory. My guest to do this is Professor Elizabeth Cohen. She's a professor of political science at Syracuse University, where she specializes in contemporary and modern political theory, history of political thought, immigration and citizenship, as well as power and identity the politics of citizenship, and civil society and democracy. Her published books include Semi-Citizenship in Democratic Politics and The Political Value of Time, which is what we discuss in this episode. We also branch out from the argument of the book to ask questions about is there a coherent theory of liberal democracy? And in our contemporary world, is, is liberal democracy in trouble? Is it being threatened from the so-called rise of far-right populism and other forces? And we end the interview with um, some thoughts on the application of all of this in today's world. So this is a slightly longer interview. It's just on the edge of um, what I would turn into two episodes. I think generally the podcast is evolving towards slightly longer episodes. It's always been a long format thing. The episodes have always been around an hour. I think it's leaning longer than that. But it's not just time. Uh, You know, there we go, right? Um, But it's not just the length of the episodes. It's also like, is it one coherent discussion? Or is it like two things that sort of stand alone? And as I was going through this and deciding, I thought, you know, this this is one coherent discussion. So I decided to leave it as one episode. And of course, that doesn't mean as the listener, you um, have to listen to it all in one sitting, but you can pick your own uh, break point. And I will say, by the way, send me feedback on how long you want the episodes to be, because there are some podcasts out there people listen to that go like four hours. Don't get me wrong, I have no intention of doing that. I like the stamina for that. But, you know, we have a particular audience here, and if they have like a particular length of time, I'll try and work towards that. One one other update on the show, which is really cool before we get started, is our numbers have seen a really big spike recently in terms of like the number of people listening, downloading, etc. We had a day a while back where we broke 2,000 downloads in a day, which I think is the first time we did that. And in general, we're regularly getting plus 10,000 unique listeners a month. I think we had 14,000 last month. And the um, online following on social media has grown as well. So that's really, really awesome, and I want to say a big thank you to everyone who shares episodes or recommends them to a friend, because legitimately, all of the growth we've seen in this podcast, you know, I don't do any paid Facebook or Twitter ads or anything like that. I have no expansion mechanism other than listeners who like the show sharing it, so that we've been adding hundreds of new listeners every week is like crazy. And that's all directly as a result of people just sharing 
these episodes. So I want to say genuinely big thank you to that, to everyone who does that. And if you do, you know, I think where we've got with this podcast is like proof of concept, right? Because when I first made it, I had no idea if this was something that even a single person would want to listen to. Because although there's podcasts that are similar, like a specific sort of long-form conversational, in-depth, hardcore political philosophy thing was like, I don't know that there's an audience for this. And I don't know there's an audience for the way I would want to do it. And there has been. Like, it's not, like, huge by the standards of some of these, like, big podcasts, but I never expected it to be that. But it's enough to show that there there is a sort of subgrouping of people either because they study it or because they have just a general interest in these questions who, you know, will tune in week to week to this show. And so if you are the type of person who enjoys this quite niche product, first of all, let me commend you for your excellent taste. And secondly, it's probably like statistically likely that other people who would have that same niche taste would be in your friendship group or in your social media following. So my big ask, um, and I'm going to annoy you with this for the next few episodes, apologies in advance, but you know, you don't have to listen to any advertising on this podcast. So instead of adverts, I'm just going to be asking, hey, if you enjoy this, then maybe some other people around you would too. We've proved that it is like a concept that people are interested in. So please do share it. Please do tag friends on social media so they see it or forward it to people who would be interested. And once again, a really big, genuine thank you to everyone who already does that. You've made it possible for this show to really become a thing. And I'm genuinely grateful to you. So let's get into today's episode. This is, like I said, a longer discussion with the central theme of time, although we branch out into several different things. At the end, I reference that I've just done an episode on the Southern Strategy. That's literally just called the Southern Strategy. That's three weeks back, if you want to check that out. And then the other episode I mentioned, um, where Jordan Peterson fans got back with me, that's just called Harris Peterson Pinker, and it's with existential comics, uh, Corey Moller, and he essentially just roasts them. So that's quite funny. It triggered, ironically, a lot of um, his fans. And if you look at the episode after it on free speech, I give a response to Peterson fans in which I double down on some of our criticisms of him. So that's what those episodes are, if you're interested. But apart from that, let's get straight to it. I really enjoyed this conversation. I really learned a lot from reading Professor Cohen's book, The Politics of Time, which I recommend to you, as well as from talking to her. So yeah, it is my absolute pleasure to present Professor Elizabeth Cohen. I am joined 
today by Professor Elizabeth Cohen. Professor, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thanks so much for inviting me. So what are the main issues that you like to think and write about? Um, so I am a political theorist by training, and my areas of interest include uh, very generally rights and social justice, mm-hmm. um, democratic theory. And then I have a specific, even probably um, one might say applied interest in um, citizenship and immigration politics. So I've written a book. My first book was uh, called Semi-Citizenship in Democratic Politics. And in that book, I explore why it is inevitable that in liberal democracies, um, there are groups of people who don't have and can't necessarily have full citizenship. Um, I've just published a book with, um, co-authored with Cyril Ghosh at Wagner College um, that's on a general introduction to the subject of citizenship. And I have a book coming out in late December, I think, or early January 2020 that's on immigration enforcement in the United States. So that's it, it's all connected by, by ideas related to rights, um, but there's some different applications there. And the book we're going to discuss today, The Political Value of Time, did that come from um, thinking about issues of immigration and rights and how time is used? in, um, you know, delays for gaining citizenship or access to a country or something like that? Or did the, did the, did thinking about time and it's the use of time politically come from somewhere different? So, um, there's a couple, you know, answers to that. Some are, you know, more personally <laughs> candid than others. I was, I was finishing my first book when the idea came to me for the early stages of the political value of time. And so, mm. Um, you're finishing your first book, chances are you're going up for tenure soon, which is a deadline that academics uh, are familiar with as being a high pressure deadline. I was, um, you know, at that point, extremely grumpy if there were any incursions on my time that I viewed as kind of unreasonable. Um, But I was also reading citizenship literature and I was reading a case that is obscure and not known by anybody except people who study the history of citizenship. Um, it makes an appearance in the book and in the case, you know, we can talk about it a little more later, but in the it, a deadline is really important to whether um, people are kind of included in the polity in this, in this famous case called Calvin's case. And I, I just was really struck by the idea that uh, turns out to have made it all the way from this um, really old case to a uh, British common law case all the way to the present, which is deadlines can just cut us in or cut us out of really important high stakes um, political statuses. So I was uh, you know, reading this case in which a deadline is important and thinking about things like um, the possibility of DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, which had a bunch of deadlines. And I just started seeing deadlines everywhere after that. And then once you have the idea, once you have a particular interpretive lens in your head and it keeps getting validated, then you're like, hey, maybe this is like something I should pursue. Yeah. mm -hmm. I was, you know, I was deep into the citizenship literature, finishing a book on semi-citizenship. And I I started to look backwards at the work I'd already done. And I was seeing time in a lot of those subjects. And then once I was done with that, I started looking forward 
um, kind of at, at new material and realizing that it not only were deadlines everywhere, but other kinds of um, time-related uh, factors that affected citizenship. So I had a similar experience reading your book, as I think you did coming to write it, or like tangentially related, in that I started it by thinking, well, this will be interesting because I don't know anything about the politics of time. I've never even thought about it before. And then as I just started working my way through some of the concrete cases, I was like, what on earth was that first thought? I've thought about this so much <laughs> already. And I have like thoughts and opinions and all of it. It's just a different organizing device. Yeah. I mean, I do think there's that we're all confronted with ways in which our time is 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 valued or in ways in which we're up against hard deadlines that really matter. We've all, you know, filed our taxes and realized that we were in trouble if we didn't file them on time. Um, but when you're really, um, I think it's much, much more apparent to people who are on the losing side of those equations. So people who miss a deadline for filing for like citizenship or people who are being incarcerated for long periods of time. Like I think, um, it's it's really, really front and center in their minds um, because the stakes are so high and they've gotten the short end of the stick. Yeah. Well, maybe let's get back to some of the applied cases because I have spent a certain amount of time on the podcast on both of those. But let's start at the beginning. The case you referenced, that's a citizenship case that's that's to do with like the English Scottish unification of the crowns way back, right? Yes, right. So, I didn't I didn't just know that. I listened <laughs> to one of your other podcasts. <laughs> uh, right. So the English and the Scottish thrones unite, and there's a question about um, what happens to people who were born before the union of the crowns because. Essentially, this is a whole new, the, the, this um, United Throne is a whole new political entity that didn't exist before. And in order to be a subject um, in the allegiance of the king, you had to be born into the allegiance of the king. So that, for people who are interested in contemporary politics, is kind of birthright citizenship, except it's not citizenship, it's subjecthood, but it's birthright political status um, really, really distilled um, to a pure form. And so what do you do about people who are born before this entity exists? And um, so the, and, and just for real citizenship nerds, um, the, the stakes are mostly, or the, the highest stakes are not the things we think about now in contemporary states. Uh, the stakes for a long time with citizenship were very much related to whether you could inherit property, own property, and then hand it down to others. Um, so, so this case is decided and, um, and there's, there's a distinction made between people who are born before the, the, the union of these thrones and the people who are born after. So the people born before are the Antonati and the people bo born after are Postnati. And you're really not a full subject um, if you're born before that date. Mm. And, and this really draws a line. We think about the boundaries of citizenship very often as kind of corresponding to boundaries in the earth. Like, where are you? 
But in this case, what really mattered was when are you? When were you born? Were you born when this this polity existed or were you born before it existed? Um, that determined whether you could be a subject in the allegiance of the king. And so then this takes us on to sort of the, the, the first, I guess, big argument of the book, which is that states, the boundaries of states are in space, but they're also in time, right? Right, exactly. So um, this is a case that's specific to common law, gets adopted in by and, and adapt adopted and adapted by Americans um, in the United States. But it applies in lots and lots of interesting ways to other contexts. So every state has a moment of foundation that is recognized. And there may be contestation over what that moment is, mm-hmm. but the contestation itself kind of um makes clear that it really matters to people when when the the polity is founded and it matters because um for often for the same reasons that it mattered in Calvin's case um the the common law case which is um you can't it's harder to claim membership in a state if you didn't exist at the time um it, it was formed or if you existed at a time, you were born at a time maybe when it was a different thing. So, um, you know, these dates get used to carve people in and carve people out in, in ways that are analogous to, they're not the same, but they're analogous to kind of pushing people out of geographic or physical boundaries. Um, the, the temporal boundaries really matter. And these temporal boundaries are also used by political actors and political belief systems as sources of legitimacy, right? I was thinking about this in the prep for the interview, in that I've been covering Brexit a lot because it's, Jesus, it's just like political theory, science fiction sometimes. Um, But we're getting all of these precedents precedents coming back from Henry VIII's powers and and the unification of the thrones, actually, is beginning to be cited because we're really testing the constitutional system to our limits. And it's sort of like... When it really comes down to it, you need a moment where it's sort of like the legitimacy buck stops here, and we're just saying this is our Fonzette Oregon in America, obviously. Um, we have the Revolutionary War and the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and all of that. And the way we think about these moments may be mythical or, or partly mythical, but it seems like a big part of what political arguments are and legal arguments and institutional arguments are is who who can claim that that we are the sort of correct interpreters of those founding moments. Yeah, I I think so first of all I think legitimacy um is exactly the right word and I I came late to using that word so I tried not to overuse it in the book because I hadn't built the book around an idea of legitimacy, but um, Josh Ober, who's a, a political philosopher at Stanford, is the one who pointed out to me in a workshop that that's really what I was dealing with, was these dates legitimize the polity by 
um, acknowledging that it didn't always exist, but then it existed. Mm. <laughs> it comes into existence and we know it came into existence because that moment is particularly important. And then we can build a whole set of theories about what happened in that moment that was particularly important, but it has to have a moment um, or it's very hard to, to kind of specify and identify it. And so you are more steeped in the um, politics of Brexit than I am. But one thing um, I'm, I like many people blow off steam on Twitter. And one thing when people will inevitably tweet at me when a Brexit deadline comes up because um, the, you know, they, 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 the process has um, been kind of mired in a lot of deadlines that are unreasonable that have forced people into positions that maybe weren't the best positions to take. Yeah, let's not go into Brexit because mm-hmm. that is that is just a pit you don't get out of. Right? You know, manage our blood pressure for today by not talking about it too much. Let's not descend into that. Okay. Um, staying with this idea of um, founding moments, though. Do you think there's anything, if we just make the claim as a descriptive, that having these particular founding moments, these really time-bound specific things where a state comes into existence, or even with something like the divine right of kings where it is imagined that it came into existence, if we make the descriptive claim that these are absolutely central to the way that political argumentation actually occurs in the real world, what does that say? What falls out um, theoretically or normatively from recognising that fact about the world? So um, one of the things that I note in the book about way of kind of hanging too much on founding moments or, or, so founding moments establish sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we get too hung up on, on founding moments or any single moment, uh, so there, there are other types of temporal boundaries that are not just, they're not just around states, but whenever we're too hung up on a moment, uh, I, it strikes me that we're really um, foreclosing or kind of pre- preventing ourselves from being too democratic. Mm. Um, and and this becomes really important in the book. Whenever you're dealing with a single moment deadline that just occurs once, mm. um, it's pretty arbitrary, which is perfect for establishing sovereignty because sovereignty isn't necessarily democratic and it's often quite arbitrary. So that makes sense. Those two things work very nicely together. But anybody who's ever missed a deadline, um, in particular for good reasons, like or or you know reasons that that were beyond their control, knows that deadlines um, are arbitrary and that that can be um, a very difficult thing. And that what you want is some flexibility. States don't have flexibility, and um, and neither do. Any, neither does anything that's pinned on one single moment that occurs once in time. Okay. Because um, there's a sort of interesting contradiction here um, in the on the one hand, you can imagine a view that says, let's just argue about what the best policy is. And we can make that on terms that are, uh, just exist purely in the moment. We can say, 
you know, this will give us the most goods and this is the best way to get it. And then that argument, like you say, can be revised if in four years it turns out that its premises are mistaken or it's no longer applicable. That's one way of proceeding. The other way of proceeding would be the idea of we did it before, therefore um, we continue doing it. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you, you cite, and there's, there's any number of examples. So, you know, lawyers cite precedent. You know, states defer to their constitutions, which tend to have their origin in a particular founding moment. And even just in terms of, like, the operation of political ideologies, they always... Um, I did a history of libertarianism, and one thing I noticed again and again is they always want to keep going back and saying, we are the correct interpreters. Of, mm-hmm. of classical liberalism. It, it's like, on the one hand, you can say, why should that matter? Either these claims about the economy and individual rights stand up or they don't. But from, from really the 1800s through to today, it's been very, very important for them to say, we are the heirs to Locke and Adam Smith and Ricardo yeah. and all of those. Um And I don't want to just be like a sort of morally consequentialist philosophical bore and just say, why are we still clinging on to this historically legitimizing function? But there's a sort of conflict there that's interesting to think about, right? Why why are we hanging on to? Why does the past why does drawing legitimacy from the past feel so salient through so much of our politics? Yeah. So I think this is like, there's a meta argument in here, which is we've for a long time been people who vested a great deal of authority in oldness, Hmm. but that, that's, that's, um, a little bit kind of, um, you know, too clever for its own good to just say we've, we're, it's an old process to be interested in things that are old. Um, and you know, true probably though it's true it's true i mean the the so you know the english looked to roman law because when they had to kind of come up with um their own law because it it had it was old but it had worked for a long time and that Mm. stability um that's implied by well this this has been around for a long time and and just the fact that the polity didn't implode, that it didn't descend into chaos, is is reassuring to us. Um, and then maybe we might want to say, well, it, it did more than just not implode. It succeeded to a certain degree that other other states didn't. Um, you know, that, that I don't think we've totally lost that mindset of kind of the security of something that at least it's been in place. Um, mm. In the in the book, I I talk about. Um, Pocock's pretty, um, but Pocock's like incredibly magisterial, um, book, The Machiavellian Moment. In which yes. He ta- yes. So he talks about, he, he dissects, um, the, this idea that, you know, people at a certain point believed that, that they were, um, at the mercy of fortune and chaos mm. in the universe. And if you can kind of reach to things that are old, um, it's not the only way to master fortune and chaos, but reaching for things that, that have that stability of having existed for a long time, that's something. 
Right. Do you think so? Do you think we can use that metaphor, which I realise is archaic and somewhat sexist, actually, the the Via Two Fortuna one, and think about it that way? We want order and certainty in social and political worlds that just sort of don't afford it to us, and deriving it from the past is a way of making it feel firmer and more objective than just, hey, listen, this is the best guess I've got on the basis <laughs> of the facts that I have in front of me. Like, that, that, that might be true, and that might be all that's available to us, but people don't feel reassured by that. We want to back our political and moral preferences with something that feels harder and firmer than that. Yeah, so here I, I would make a distinction and say that, you know, I, I think of states in a very kind of soft Foucauldian way. So I'm not a hardcore Foucauldian, but I do find persuasive the idea that there, you know, that this that there's kind of a logic to states um, mm. and that reason of state and a Foucauldian understanding of reason of state is like the state exists to keep existing and to um kind of shepherd the population so to increase the population or secure the population um and to you know to perpetuate its own existence it has to kind of guarantee certain types of security or why would people get involved in this business of being governed in the first place (laughs) um and so that lines up neatly with a simple kind of well this has been around so it may be flawed it may have done x y and z but it, it stood the test of time. So it oldness gives us at least that kind of authority. Um, that, again, just like single moments work well for sovereignty, that's great for a state that doesn't have to do um, the, the kind of work that a democratic state does um, or that a democracy does. So for a state to simply say, like, this has some authority, we know it's worked, that's good enough for a state. Although, even within a democratic state, you can imagine a role for this sort of, like, I don't know what you'd call this process, but, like, adding authority to an argument, adding at least the the feeling of objectivity to it. Mm -hmm. You can imagine a role for that within a pluralistic democratic state in which you have multiple competing visions of the good, in that if those visions, almost like in an evolutionary sense, if those visions are just going and saying, hey, listen, this is what I think is good, and being epistemically humble about how little they know about that, if some other vision comes along and says, this is what we think is good, and it's right because of X, where X is history, authority, legitimacy, the sort of sanction of the past, that would give it a sort of comparative advantage over its rivals in some sort of like ideological evolutionary arms race. You can see a use for it within discourse in democratic states. Yeah. I mean, I think that you brought up the idea of precedent. And um, for a lay person who does not know much about the incredibly complicated business of, of law, um, oh, precedent- God, you and, you and me both, but yes. <laughs> oh. Having just finished a deep dive into immigration law, in which I needed help from immigration lawyers, I've learned mm-hmm. how much I don't know. Um, you know, we 
like a lay person is going to expect that there's a, a higher bar for overturning a precedent than for um, respecting the pre- a precedent. Like, mm. you know, if this is the way we've done things, you're going to have to provide some reasons for departing from the way we've done things. If you can't provide some reasons and if they don't seem to be good reasons, that's going to be upsetting. Yeah. Um, so so all, all other things being equal, let's not try something that might blow up in our face. It's not a sophisticated argument, but it's not a terrible one either. Yeah. And like we also bought in, if, you know, we've been living under the precedent. So we're now invested in it, right? Because it's us. <laughs> and so we want to be told why we have to change um, because it was it, we were we were participating in the system in which the precedent um, was governing. Lock and the King's Highways and all of that. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, sorry, that was a little of a tangent. I do, I do find it interesting, though, the way in which different political positions try to, like, sanction themselves with appeals. I mean, appeals to history is one, appeals to authority is another, also, like, appeals to science. A lot of ideologies will say we're sort of, like, scientifically true in a way that rival visions of the world aren't. Yeah. And then um, I would say there's this another one which is extremely um, powerful, which is, you know, um, nationhood and a sense of, mm. of having been a people, which inevitably reaches back to some story, usually right. involving some myth, but, um, you know, like very few um, leaders are out there right now making appeals to brand new, newly invented peoples. Peoples tend to have histories that the um, constituents can attach to. And um, those, those like the length of those histories and then what happened during those histories is really important to people, even if it's like 90% myth and didn't really <laughs> happen the way they think it did. Um, right, so this moves me on to the the next part in um, what I wanted to ask you about, is we've talked about how we draw on the past and history in justifying a constitutional order and how specific moments in time um, can serve as a sort of foundation and a boundary of it, but then one thing that your book pursues is like disagreements within an order about what that constitutional order should be doing. So could you start, um, could you explain to me, because you introduced me to this term, the um, incompletely theorized agreements um, thing, because I found that to be a really useful idea. Oh, good. Um, So very loosely for anybody Hmm. um, who's listening, who's not familiar with the the overall arc of the argument, I I move from single moment boundaries to different types of boundaries that have two points in which a duration of time is important. And um, then I talk about all these instances in which durations of time are really important to democracy. So periods of time in which we give consent to something, um, periods of time in which, you know, people become citizens, periods of time in which somebody might pay a debt to society um, and and kind of lose part of their citizenship and, and all these different different quantities of time 
that allow us to transact in politics, um, creating these what I call temporal formula um, that aren't just about time, but in which time figures prominently. Hmm. And um, in thinking about this, I came to first the idea of commensuration, which uh, if it, it kind of shows up early in the book. So time in this book refers to scientifically measured time. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're like, I just bypassed the immense literature on different forms of time, but I'm talking about clock and calendar time and clock and calendar time is, um, is, you know, we use numbers to keep track of clock and calendar time and numbers uh, can be used to perform this action, um, for people, which is commensuration, in which commensuration we take things that are pretty abstract and turn them into something a little more concrete. So, um, you know, when we talk about somebody becoming a citizen, like we are taking a bunch of abstract things like um, learning the language um, enough or becoming acquainted with the ways in which the citizenry does things, you know, all these kind of things that we are really hard to measure. And we're just putting a number on it and saying, we've measured it. It's take, it's five years and and come back to us in five years after you've lived for five years. And we're just basically with some, you know, oaths and a test about civics. um, We're going to assume that you've formed a relationship to our polity and um, barring discovering something um, in those few other checks, we're going to give you citizenship. So that number becomes really important and it's, it's important because otherwise like, you know, we'd really struggle for ways to decide that people had become citizens. And similarly, like with the other temporal types of temporal formula, we'd also struggle to figure out whether somebody had um, been punished properly for their crime. Um, So that's commensuration. We're taking these values and um, making them a little more concrete. But a lot of other things are happening when we settle on that number two. And the incompletely theorized agreement is Cass Sunstein's term for a particular type of commensuration um, that turns out to be quite common in societies like ours. And that is a case in which we really disagree about something that should be happening. And either of the two things I just discussed, becoming a citizen or punishment, um, are things we, you know, really can disagree about. So I'll take punishment in part because it really exemplifies what's going on here, but also because Sunstein works with punishment and mm-hmm. sentence reform. So um, the punishment itself um has is the the punishment we're familiar with as people living in 2019 um, is usually a prison sentence. That was uh, the idea of incarceration and a prison sentence is modern and in the human history relatively new. We used to engage in like really, really baroque forms of torture or Mm -hmm. banishment. So, you know, I read about, Fabulous things like 
forcing people to swallow molten metal as a punishment. Um, but then lots and lots of banishment, just putting people out of the polity. And um, so, you know, modern modern thinking is like very focused on attempting humane forms of punishment. And a prison sentence was supposed to be humane. But we actually don't really agree in any context on what is supposed to happen during a prison sentence. And so punishment theorists like go round and round. Um, but still we have sentences. So a sentence, a prison sentence is really interesting because we don't agree on what is supposed to be happening. We don't agree on whether it's supposed to be reforming somebody, whether they're supposed to be paying their debt to society, whether we're just keeping them out of the polity for a while because they're not safe. Like, there's no, there's no agreement on that. And yet the prison sentences are highly routinized. Like we've agreed to have prison sentences and we've even come to agreement about um, what they should be enough to, to put them into place. And Sunstein calls this, this a, um, process by which we agree to do something without having really agreed on like the underlying norms of why we're doing it or um, what it really means. He calls that an incompletely theorized agreement. Because we haven't theorized the why of the prison sentence, but we've gone ahead and agreed to have them anyway. So let me try and track all of that to make sure I understood it. So commensuration is a process by which we use something that we can put a number to. In this case, we're talking about time as a way of sort of just negotiating an outcome that otherwise would require too many judgments to really make on a day-to-day basis. And a specific instance of that is an incompletely theorized agreement wherein, you know, say you have three different, as a purely hypothetical, three different people have to decide what happens to a prisoner. One of them wants to punish, one of them wants to reform, and one of them wants to deter. They won't, they can come to an agreement on four years. Mm-hmm. without coming to an agreement on the underlying justification for that four years. Exactly. And it's really important because they will never agree on the underlying justification. It's it's just not. And this is something I talk about in my first book. We are, you know, different. Um, there's just a lot of different ways of thinking about core rights claims in liberal democracies that aren't compatible and and like it's it's no surprise that we don't agree on on why we um punish people and certainly if you look at immigration politics today not just in the u.s but in europe um it's clear we don't agree on like what makes somebody a citizen and we're not likely to to come to an agreement about that either so our best hope is agreeing on something that's really neutral that we can attach meaning to um, and that we can each attach a different or our own meaning to. And time is just, it's not the only form of commensuration out there by any stretch. I mean, money, you know, is also, we commensurate with money as well. Um, But time is so perfect because it simultaneously has this kind of you know, way in which it appears scientific and and very neutral and impartial, because of course the clock ticks at the same rate for everybody. And we're not, nobody is controlling the clock. No human being who could be partial is controlling the clock. 
And yet societies do have very rooted, um, distinct senses of time so that we, you know, we don't just know our founding moments, but we kind of, you know, understand our own um, U.S. or British or German um, sense of the way time goes. So, you know, it just really works nicely for these um, questions to do with rights because we tell ourselves these totally opposite contradictory things at the same time and forge ahead as if we didn't just say something completely contradictory, which is time is neutral and time has special meaning. But I think this goes against how most people think about politics, which I'm not saying it's right, I don't think it is, but they would see that theoretical disagreement as an obstacle to be overcome, that ultimately reform is the correct way, or deterrence is the correct way to think about punishment, and ultimately what needs to happen is that the other sides just lose, essentially. You want to make a bit of a thicker claim in building on the Sunstein thing, right, in that saying because of essential contestability, there will always be that sort of, or there will always at least be areas of that theoretical disagreement. Yeah. Um, so I, I draw in this idea of an essentially contested concept, um, which is something whose meaning is simply going to be um, perpetually contested. And we're never going to come to consensus on kind of what citizenship means or what punishment is really for. And, and there are kind of, I, it would be a little bit too in the weeds, but there are qualities to concepts that are that um make them more likely to be essentially contested but what matters is at this point we know we're not going to come to any kind of agreement and to force ourselves to put ourselves in a position where we had to agree um would raise the costs of doing politics to the point where you know we 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 wouldn't like we it, we would break apart or um, we would fail to come to consensus about something so fundamental that, you know, we couldn't proceed. So having a way to all think something different about the same process um, allows us to proceed. It allows us to go forward. Um, you know, we are going to have law enforcement in a state and there are going to be consequences for breaking the law. And we have to make decisions about what those consequences are. And in order to do that, we're going to have to, um, you know, come to some kind of policy. And we can't do this. Or it's really good if we can all buy in um, and, and think what we want to think about the policy. And, and time allows us to do that. Numbers, but time in particular, is really satisfying to people. Hmm. So Sunstein looks at um, sentencing reform as an, a case of an, an incompletely theorized agreement because he, he goes back and he looks at like all these different things that people thought about sentencing when we were trying to come up with sentencing reform and points out that there never was agreement on, on what was going into that and what, what it was like, why we were doing it and what it was, what the sentences were supposed to accomplish or what the reform was supposed to accomplish. But we did get it done. And we're revisiting it because there were mistakes were made, right? Big mistakes were made. 
Right. Uh, but, and, to, uh, but to reform it, we have to also come to some kind of incompletely theorized agreement. And the fact that there is this sort of foundational pluralism of values implied by essential contestability doesn't mean that we can't have one. It doesn't mean that we have to be relativists. It doesn't mean that we can't have preferences for one of those values claims over another. Mm -hmm. And two, it doesn't mean that we can't challenge or try and move around the end result. So it might be that we think four years is much too long and we can try and pull that down. There's right. nothing about this that assumes that we're just sort of stuck in a sort of morass of just everyone's going to think what they're going to think. Right, not at all. We're, we're probably going to uh, revisit and, and re-articulate some of the same arguments if we try to revise our sentencing guidelines or try to revise our naturalization procedures. A lot of these, you know, these are deep foundational concepts. And so there's not a lot of totally novel things to say. The positions that people can hold have generally been articulated and people will gravitate to um, some version of a previously articulated argument about that. But, but yeah, I mean, sentencing guidelines that came out of discussions from the 70s and the 80s um, failed and we are revisiting them or have revisited them and I think we'll continue to and nothing is stopping us from or nothing about um, the that's distinct to an incompletely theorized agreement stops us from revisiting things and anything we come to in the future will probably also be an incompletely theorized agreement. Right. It sort of adds another step because I think like we want to think about political change as you have an idea or a value. You persuade people of that idea or value, you implement it, you get a result. You yeah. know, you, you, you have a new idea or value, you do a new policy as a result, rinse, wash, repeat. Whereas right. this adds another step wherein there will be multiple conflicting and competing ideas and values. Some sort of policy, you know, the unfathomable bullshit happens. Some sort of policy will emerge as a result, which those different ideas and values can then, at least some critical mass of them, can then look back on and say, yeah, see, we sort of got what we wanted out of that, and rinse, wash, repeat. But that doesn't mean that the relative strength of those different ones and what they would want to insist on might not change. So, you know, in the 90s when we, or the 80s or whenever, when we had all of the really strict criminal sentencing, the punishment stuff, the fear of crime stuff, that might have been weighted much more heavily at the table and be much more insistent on, you know, no, it's got to be 10 years. Mm -hmm. Whereas maybe today that stuff has, I'm being idealistic here, but is less heavily weighted at the table and is more willing to have its like hardline number pushed down, maybe. But right. it's, it's not going to be the case that we just go from now on, punishment is purely about rehabilitation and everyone just goes, oh, yeah, yeah, shoot, that was right all along. Yeah, yeah, that that is is not absolutely not going to happen. But, um, you know, I mean, to to kind of draw out the core theme here, what you're asking about um, incompletely theorized agreements are strong in the sense that we can all attach to them. But of course, 
if we've agreed to something thinking different things, there's implied flexibility as well. There's all kinds of other politics that have nothing to do with the, the incompletely theorized agreement or have plenty to do with, you know, um, other policies or local circumstances, um, you know, re-articulated or re- rethought um, understandings of like um, how how we deal with racial justice, um, but but that there is there is both a, a kind of um, strength and a flexibility to incompletely theorized agreements. It's just they will be deeply dissatisfying to anybody who wants um, a one single um, really coherent explanation for why a policy or you know, something policy-like is the way it is. So the reason I sort of asked that then is I feel like if that's true writ small for like, say, why is it four years and not ten, right? It's writ large for like our constitutional orders in general. Like, it's, I think especially in America, but you know, everywhere, we are sort of walking around with the idea that there is one coherent theory behind our system of government in within which you know it provides space for other things to compete but like is i mean and i mean this is an open question is that right i mean it strikes me that in the american founding a number of the things that we had so for instance you know why do we have the electoral college well a bunch of people thought different things about what it would do, hoped for different things to it, and then took different things away from its eventual, you know, application. And more broadly, is there a coherent theory behind this sort of merging of liberalism and democracy? Or are there different values systems at work here, which ultimately are not fully commensurate? So those are those the are big set, questions. I know a set but. of really interesting questions. Yeah, I think um, you know, again, non-experts, lay people find it, which do find it incredibly unsettling to consider that um, we that the Constitution contains ambiguity um, or that it gets reinterpreted. You know, I think that that originalism is has been a persuasive or kind of almost comforting to a lot of people for reasons that reach back to the, the earlier part of the conversation in which the idea that like, well, this is what people at that moment long ago thought. And that has authority because it was a long time ago at that particular moment. Um, you know, that, that's something that a lot of people hang a great deal of weight on and, and they wouldn't really know what I think, like a lot of us would not know what to do if it turns out that, um, you know, there was a typo (laughs) (laughs) thinking of, um, things that have been revealed. Like there was a, there was a clerical error. (laughs) It turns out that's not what anybody meant, but also, you know, that less, um, kind of sarcastically, it, the, really digging into the disagreement among founders who are hammering out a constitution would be unsettling to people as well. And, and so, you know, the federalists didn't like, these were 
people, Madison and Hamilton, really disagreed about a lot of things and were forging compromises. And there are some famous compromises involving, you know, commensuration using numbers and um, that, you know, we, we find absolutely abhorrent today. Compromises having to do with the representation um, that I'm thinking like three fifths of a person for mm. um, representation of um, states in which there is um, legal slavery and slavery. Yeah, that's a hell of an example of commensuration, isn't it? Yeah, it, <laughs> it, it just um, really brings home a lot of things about commensuration, which is something that can, you know, move politics forward, not necessarily for the good. Um, but yeah, so like, but, you know, that's one of many compromises. And in fact, um you know, small things could have turned some compromises in other directions, or we, we might, some of the compromises might have been bad ones, and um, in which case, like, those things should be revisited. So is there a coherent, do you think, this is a really big question, do you think there's a theoretically coherent account of liberalism, of, demo, of liberal democracy, or do we have at least two theoretical justifications working to justify a single set of practices. Yeah. So this is something I take up in depth in my first book. And I, um, I tend to fall on the side of um, the second conclusion that, in fact, liberalism and democracy rely on each other. They're kind of built around each other, but also at certain points depart and kind of contradict each other. And so in the first book, I'm talking about membership and citizenship. And a fundamental point there is that um, democracy thinks about boundaries in different ways than kind of um, Kantian liberalism would. So that you're just going to need, a democracy is going to dictate um, different rules about setting boundaries and very different kind of narrower boundaries to form a demos than a liberal conception of kind of who's who's a person entitled to rights would. So I think, um, and not everybody agrees, but I think there are two logics. Well, there's multiple logics at work because there's also reason of state. And so in that in that book, I I talk about kind of the three things as being both at sometimes quite dependent on each other. Like you're not going to have a democracy, let alone a liberal democracy without some kind of state. Um, but, but also, you know, what the state wants and what a, a um, pure democratic theorist would recommend will be different um, at certain points that will depart and, and states often, but not always like reason of state often, but not always gets its way. Um, democracy is pretty powerful too. And liberal thought you know, if we if we just if we if we just took a really like narrow, rigid understanding of what a demos is, it it could well turn out to be the case that we can't admit new members, mm. or that we simply we don't know like what to do about children. So we're we're constantly forming these compromises, um, some but not all of which are incompletely theorized. Right. Um, so here's here's a genuine open question. Would incompletely theorized um, agreements, that's at a lower, like a higher level of granularity than what we're talking about with like the entire <laughs> theory of the state, right? You wouldn't say that liberal democracy itself 
itself is an incompletely theorized agreement. Or would you? I don't know. Probably not. You know, I'd be interested to hear what Cass Sandstein has to say about that. Um, I, I actually haven't really um, thought through whether now knowing, having the concept of incompletely theorized agreements, whether I would kind of apply it to that first book. But I, I tend to think not. I tend to think in some cases um, there are some incompletely theorized agreements that come out of these conflicts between liberalism um, uh, kind of bureaucratic rationality or reason of state and democratic theory. And then some, in some cases, like one logic wins. Mm. Um, and, and so um, kind of liberal personhood wins some of the time and states, you know, reason of state or bureaucratic rationality has to take a back seat and, and kind of acknowledge claims that aren't particularly tidy, um, or comfortable from the perspective of sovereignty and, and sometimes not. Um, so we can admit new members and we can have porous, if not open borders, Hmm. but there are limits too. And so those, you know, we're, and we're constantly kind of negotiating those conflicts. Some of them are not, are, yeah, we're not, they're not incompletely theorized. I think I've got to give my final answer. Most of those are not incompletely theorized agreements. They're, they're compromises. And, and the semi-citizenships that I talk about in that first book, they're, they're like, they don't, they tend to not really reflect. Um, they're not always very coherent because they don't reflect one, um, one form of reasoning, they tend to reflect compromises. So you would say that liberal democracies are, you know, institutional arrangements, ideals, living, you know, what, however you want to describe mm-hmm. them, which have multiple, you identified three, but, you know, at least two, maybe three, maybe like 17, but like at, you know, at least a few big theoretical justifications. Those theoretical justifications on a sort of conceptual level, are sometimes compatible with each other and sometimes not. And on a practical level, the sort of results that they would recommend sometimes pull together, sometimes constrain or like counterweigh each other, and in some instances are in outright opposition to others. And incompletely theorized agreements are one specific mechanism amongst many we have for sort of managing that. Yes, yes. I would say all of that except the 17 logics. I'm pretty committed. <laughs> I'm committed to the three, and I'm open to hearing about the other 14, but I haven't heard them yet. Um, yes, yes. And, um, you know, I, we, there are many examples, um, different examples of each outcome that you just laid out in which things work or they don't work. Um, I, was, I was just going to ask, could you maybe concretize like one case where all three logics pull together and one case where one logic sort of beats the others, as it were. Oh, okay. That's, um, yes. So, um, just to help me wrap my head around it, if nothing else. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I would, I'm, I'm going to present two compromises, but where you can kind of see different, different things in play. So, um, it highlights the the process of the compromise. So, um, I'll start with children. Um, 
so if I go, like when I was still giving talks on that first book, I would go to talk about children's citizenship and people would say, children are citizens. And they were just done with it. And, you know, so I would say, oh, but, you know, we don't let children vote. And they would say, no, that's absurd. Children can't vote. A five-year-old can't vote. Mm. And I'd say, so, but isn't voting the characteristic act of a citizen? Mm. Then we could get a discussion going. So what's going on there? Um, Take a child who's been born to U.S. citizen parents um, in the United States in every way qualifies for a passport and gets a passport. Um, So that child is legally, has legal nationality. Um, And then I start looking at, well, what, what else does citizenship confer? Um, Citizenship confers not just legal nationality, which is kind of rights of place and rights of free movement, but it confers what T.H. Marshall tells us, civil, social, and political rights. Well, children have no political rights. They are not actually, they can't make real claims on a lot of representation. We can hope their parents represent them, but parents don't get extra votes. They have no extra weight. It's really just good luck when children's interests get represented and they don't get represented very often. Um, Children have very few civil rights. So they're not like out there doing lots of real estate deals. We don't let them do that. And they're limited, you know, some of their speech can be limited. Um, Sometimes it can't. What children do have are social rights. Very often children can actually make more robust claims to, um, to resources that help them, you know, just provide for them um, their welfare than adults can. So this is particularly true in the U.S. because we have such a weak social welfare system, but children can make claims for food aid and educational support and things that adults can't make. Um, So you have there um, some good democratic reasoning that's giving them, um, denying them some rights that we have decided they're not actually able to, um, to exercise. And um, then liberal, so re, um, reason of state gives them place and eventually will give them rights of free movement. Um, democratic theory says they're not ready to exercise some basic um, democratic rights. And liberalism comes in and says, but at a certain point, and we're going to use a number to determine that point, they will come into the rest of those rights. Mm. When they are rational, right, which is kind of a core concept in liberalism, when Mm -hmm. they are rational creatures, and probably that's when they're 18, but, you know, (laughs) varies from place to place. But when we decide that they've spent enough time learning about how to be a citizen and becoming rational creatures, then they come into the possession of the rest of those rights. So see the compromises being made, right? If it was, if, if we used only one of those logics, we would produce a different result for children. But using all three gives us this kind of staged incremental um, um, bestowing of the rights. And a result, though, that probably, I mean, I don't know how much normative weight we want to put on our intuitions, but that to most of us would feel much, would feel a much better outcome overall than any individual one of those logics sort of, quote, taken to extremes. That is true. And it is also true that um, it's it's also dissatisfying. So 
you know, the fact that children aren't represented is is a problem in the compromise because these are people who are going to become citizens. And um, essentially, a lot of their future is being legislated by people who will be dead by the time that um, that it like the consequences of the decisions come to fruition. This is a really important um, argument being made in the climate change movement, but it was an argument that was anticipated by Jefferson. Mm. Um, so in the book, I talk a bit about Jefferson and a lot about Condorcet and their ideas of time and politics. And one thing they agreed on was that the dead shouldn't rule over the living. Mm. But when we don't give children and when we can't, we don't even bother to think about how we would represent children. We're essentially consigning them to be ruled by the dead. Hmm. I like the phrase "ruled by the dad." Um, <laughs> I don't. You don't like it. it. It's a nice. It's a nice. It's a nice phrase. It. Uh, it works. Um, it's evocative. Yes. Um, Chesterton talks about it positively. He says, "We will be the democracy of gravestones." Um, yeah. So that, that's Aster, a- Aster Taylor, um, who has a book in which she talks a little bit about time in a kind of related to democ- to democracy, but. Uh, or democratic theory, but um, not drawing on quite the same kind of arguments that I am, brings up um, Chesterton. Um, so, I, get the, I mean, just to close this section out, this is a really big point. People want a sort of theoretically coherent set of rules to the game. Is that even, is that even possible? And if it is, is that is that desirable, or is this sort of like mishmash of theoretical justifications sort of the best we can hope for? So I think that um, I guess, as the kids say, it's coherentish. Coherentish. <laughs> uh, it's not. It's we are not operating on rules distilled from one um, political theory in which all the pieces fit together. But um, but many pieces fit together. And so we don't have consensus. We're not all in agreement about everything. And not, and not every part of a liberal democracy fits with every other part. Um, but lots do. And um, so it is at the same time, you know, lots of lots of things. Um, they may not be. They may or may not be good, but they're coherent. Hmm. It is still extra um, salient, ex- extra important to pay close attention to these semi citizenships or these moments in which we really see things start to fall apart. And hmm. um, you know, immigration. It's just, you know, nobody. Unfortunately, because we don't represent children, nobody thinks enough about children. But we're thinking a lot about the rights of non-citizens, foreign-born persons in the U.S. And you can really see that here's a case where um, the compromises aren't working very well because we have a large population of people in the United States who've lived here for decades and not only can't get citizenship um, right now, but will never qualify for citizenship so um in in the book i talk at length about the fact that we've recognized that time operates in a way that transforms people into citizens 
but we never give credit to undocumented persons for the time they've spent in the country. And so there's A, a breakdown in compromises and logic, and um, B, a complete contradiction of everything we've said about time and citizenship in other contexts. Do you think, so this is another big question, so I'm just like asking you to solve the meaning of life on this <laughs> podcast, but um, do you think, if you look at like the arc of history from God knows what, like the end of the Second World War through to today, um, do you, so there's one narrative in which because of various things that are happening in the world, those compromises are getting more fraught and the various theoretical justifications are getting pulled apart a bit and those moments of coherence when they all pulled together are are becoming less common so so to concretize that a bit there's a lot of people both conservatives and sort of on the far left who really feel like we're in a moment where liberal democracy is in trouble. And it's not hard to look at events to sort of point to a narrative of that. I mean, you're thinking about immigration. I have Brexit on my mind through a lot of this discussion. Um, as, as well, Trump, the rise of the far right, um, the um, ways in which white nationalism which has always been a part of American political life, always, and if anything is less common now, they're still very prevalent, has shifted from being something that's euphemized to something that isn't. Mm -hmm. You know, if you pull all of that together, there is a story to be told in which the splits between liberalism and democracy are kind of coming apart at the seams a little bit. And some of the contradictions that we were able to gloss over more easily in sort of the so-called post-war consensus, where you still had liberals and conservatives and social democrats and whatever, but they'd sort of, there was a set of outcomes that most of the time that they could all live with, that that seems to have come apart and the contradictions which we could sort of pretend weren't there are now becoming manifest in the world. I'm not saying that narrative's right. I'm just saying it is a narrative that is being made by a lot of people from very different places in the political spectrum. And yeah. I, don't, I don't know the answer to it. I'm just asking you, given the context of everything we've just talked about. Yeah. So I, first of all, I think there's two versions of the narrative, or I can, I can look using my lens and see two versions of the narrative. One is in which liberalism got its way too much. Um, and in particular, um, kind of the logic of capital or the, um, priorities of capital that, um, then are often referred to as, as, um, using neoliberalism, but like a forms of liberalism. And, um, and I, I, I think usually people refer to that as liberalism. I kind of, um, subsume that under the civil rights of democratic theory that Mm. civil rights, like some civil rights just to some people, um, became all about, capital and Mm. what capital wants. And then the other version is, um, 
the the kind of peoplehood argument stemming um, from a narrow conception of what the demos is, and that the this attachment to um, a, a kind of sense of nation and firstness and lineage um, that that's out of out of control or kind of has um, gained gained too much sway in a lot of people's minds. And I don't um, think that I it's something we could hammer out right here and now, which of those arguments is right. I think though, that what I would say is that, um, we're experiencing a lot of turmoil, but there's nothing that, um, wasn't, you know, that, that wasn't, that's salient now that wasn't salient. I'd say you, you, you started our clock at, um, I think, World War II or the end of World War II. Um, and like, um, I, I would, I don't think that, that, um, there's anything that's salient now that wasn't salient then. Um, even though we're experiencing kind of a sense of really, um, uh, stirred up politics, like there was great strife over, um, race and racial inclusion mm. um, that may have used different language but did refer to a concept of kind of who belonged and who didn't and there was if you you mentioned um, kind of having done I think you said you did a, a podcast on um, the history of libertarianism but mm. the, that was a period in, in which libertarianism was also um, fermenting and and the logic of capital was was um, was being promoted. So I I, t- I tend to fall on the side of people like um, Corey Robin who think that there there are distinctive things happening, but this isn't a totally novel moment and unprecedented ar- arrangement of kind of unprecedented falling apart of things that were stable and good for a long time. I think I agree and. There's nothing here that's unexpected. I think there's a narrative that Trump in particular is just, and I mean, he is a grotesque figure, but Mm -hmm. that, you know, what's distinctive about him is the persona, which is a bit out of the ordinary. But in terms of sort of playing to racial hatred and stuff like that, um... That that's nothing especially new, even in recent American history, and it's something it's a demon that we've sort of battled with and fought with and to some degree managed and in some degree failed to manage. Yeah. I mean just to I took a long route around this, but I'll just say it more bluntly. Like people it, it you know, the ar- the argument about semi citizenship um is basically that you know, people have at every moment of liberal democracies experienced not getting full rights. Mm. And um, it may be the case that, you know, some people are repeatedly, you know, generation after generation disenfranchised and other people maybe kind of feel a new threat of disenfranchisement. But um, not the idea that people's rights are um, in peril or that they've lost some rights um, that they thought they were entitled to, like, that's not a new thing. No, rights have always been subject to 
compromise, essentially, Often right? aspirational. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, and... Yeah, no, that, that feels feels right to me. At the same time, I don't I don't begrudge people who feel panicked in the current moment, you know? I, I certainly don't think we should take that too far and be and say, oh, it's nothing new, we got this. It's no. it, you know, it I may think maybe they should have just been panicked earlier at other points too, I would say. There was there was always cause for looking closely at um at at power. And and who had it and how they were using it. So let's bring that back to time then. First of all, um, well, let's let's just start with. First of all, you said time was useful in liberal democracies because it has the appearance of being fairly universal, fairly egalitarian. You know, five years for you is five years for me. Could you break that down a bit in the context of what we've been talking about of immigration, the denial of rights, and then how that may not be the case for some people? Sure. So one of the things, even though they get interpreted differently, that liberalism and democratic theory have in common is a commitment to some kind of egalitarianism. And in the context of time, um, you know, we try to realize our commitments to egalitarianism with this um, use of very, very consistent measurements of time to transact over rights. So lots of temporal formula. Um, specify a period of time in which you're going to have to wait for rights or um, an, a, uh, an age that's the same for everybody at which you can come into some rights um, or a, a period of time in which you're going to be doing without your rights for some reason or another. And they're the same for everybody in the particular circumstances that are in question. Um, and in the book, I get into having reasons that we think that the passage of time works the way it does, the things we think happen in time, and, um, and that, that people um, may develop over periods of time um, and specific periods of time for specific types of development. And so I argue the kind of normative punchline of the book is that once we've made a commitment to something like these processes, these very important processes of becoming a citizen or um, uh, paying your debt to society, being punished, um, you know, whatever it is we think is happening during punishment, these, these um, periods of time, we commit to them for reasons. And when Somebody's time, when they have to wait longer, to, and specifically wait longer to get rights um, than other similarly situated people, so people in a very similar position, um, that we've taken away the value of their time. So we gave some people's time value and said, you can have your rights at this point after this many years. We make other people who seem to be in a very similar position wait longer. We've devalued their time. And that's kind of, in a democracy, a form of political exploitation. It's certainly unfair in ways um, that leave people without rights, not for any good reason. So when we're incarcerating um, people, and particular people of color, black and brown people in the United States, for longer than we incarcerate white people um, 
in very similar positions. So the classic example is um, uh, powdered cocaine versus raw cocaine. Right. Yeah, people are familiar with that. I think powdered cocaine came was thought to be, turns out not to have been true, but thought to be more associated with white crime. And people of color were thought to be um, more likely to um, p- possess um, rock cocaine. Like, that's patently unfair if you make the sentences higher for the crime you think that people of color are going to commit, which is a long tradition in the United States. You're just devaluing their time. And it was their political currency. It was everybody's political currency. And you've said their political currency has no value. And that that if we think that things happen to people's character over periods of time, that's essentially denying anyone whose time is devalued. It's denying their moral equality. Right. Because, like you say, time is a political currency. Mm-hmm. And if you say, um, well, there's a sort of implicit assumption, right? Like if you say the purpose of punishment is to reform or to punish, for that matter. Um, and you say then, we're going to take more time t- with black people in the case of this argument. There's sort of an implicit logic there that black people are less capable of reform and more need of being punished, which is obviously not a pleasant thing to say about a group of people. It's it's un- it's an unsustainable claim. I mean, it's it 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 can't be sustained by any normative um, logic that that um, undergirds the polity, and you know it is also um, we could never empirically sustain it. Although um, that's not the point. Um, Right. It it is it is implicitly saying character. So you know, character development happens in time. Hmm. Whatever it is we're doing when we give you know give people rights after a period of time has to do with some kind of process. Um, but in the case of punishment, it might be related to character development. We're essentially saying like time doesn't operate on you the same way it operates on other people. Hmm. It operates less effectively. Therefore, you're going to have to spend more time waiting for your rights. And that that's that is um, unjust. Right. Right. I mean, let me let me ask you this. Did any of your um, sort of po- uh, political policy preferences change as a result of thinking and writing about this book um, or, or perhaps grow stronger or less compromising? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think that I, I, I don't know if I can attribute this solely to the book, but I think I've, I have, um, really started to question the wisdom of a lot of parts of immigration law. I just didn't know that much about almost all of which involve, um, in the United States, we have just lots and lots of um, temporal rules about immigration. So it's not just, you know, naturalization requires five years, but also there are these unlawful presence bars where if you're found to have been unlawfully present under some circumstances, one time you are barred from the country, even from legal entry to the country for a period of time. And there's like three and eventually you end up permanently barred from ever 
even asking for permission to legally enter the United States. Um, so I, I started to really, I, I think I went in with more moderate views and kind of a more generous view of how we um, treat pe- foreign-born people trying to make claims just to even be in the country. Um, I, re- I really, I, I um, came to find our way of dealing with that just nonsensical. There's actually a new one that's dropped over the last week, which is um, the the Trump administration's been threatening to do this for some time. But it's essentially if you ever claim benefits, then Mm -hmm. that is going to act um, so that you can't then subsequently claim citizenship. Um, Which then forces people to choose between, like, do I access the services that I need to help my family in the moment, knowing that it might cost me the opportunity to fully be an American citizen in the future. It's a really grotesque piece of... And I think this does go to like what we were talking about earlier, which is just people have different values. I know it's obvious when you say it like that, but but this sort of the urge on the criminal justice side, the urge to punish, not not to reform, not to deter, but just specifically to hurt people who you think have done something bad has never held any great normative appeal to me. And the the, the urge to like intentionally make the immigration process painful, to have the process itself act as a deterrent, which is explicit now but has been present forever, is just not a value that I share or I can understand reasons why it would be normative. But people hold them, powerful people hold them, and that's the the thing we have to compromise with over the times and limits and delays, you know? Yeah, I mean, the good news is that um, if you don't prompt people to think that way, you know, in general, uh, Americans, like our more, more Americans are supportive of immigrants and immigration than not, right? So the, the politics that is loudest right now doesn't really reflect the country. Um, similarly, we, you know, it has taken a long time, I think, to start to move people's consciousness about punishment. But I do think that a significant amount of progress has been made in the last, you know, 15 years. Um, so we don't agree. I do want to inject a little optimism into another slightly dark part of the conversation. And that is, um, just that there, there is, um, a core there of, belief that even if it's even if people don't exactly come to it the same from the same for the same reason like is generally disposed um toward treating people um with respect and none of that is to say that people the the inevitability of disagreement is not to say um that the parameters of it can't change and indeed, if you look at attitudes towards race in America, um, there's been a my, my read of the data is it's been in it, it's been in consistent decline over the past fifty years. Negative racial attitudes from like something like two thirds of white Americans holding overtly prejudiced views to maybe 
15% or so, which is still high. And it's sort of leveled off. The decline has stopped over the last 10 or 15 years. But that's a huge shift of 100 million people. It is. It is. I mean, it, it would be interesting to know, like, there's arguments now that claims are kind of based in the idea of racial injustice have given rise to this reaction um, in which lots of white people are now claiming some that they can um, that they have experienced racial injustice as well, but I mean, yes, there there are there are some signs that that occasionally progress, <laughs> progress can happen. <laughs> yeah, talking of arguments, you just don't understand. You know, as a white guy, I can speak with authority on this one. The idea that so I was um, I, I I mean I won't go into this, but I was just talking with um, Angie Maxwell, who wrote a history of the Southern Strategy mm-hmm. um, about that particular urge. Um, I've done a lot of door to door canvassing for political candidates, and unlike you know many of my left wing peers, I've done it of Republican primary voters as well right. to try and get them to you know activate a state senator to vote a particular way or so on. Um, this idea um that white people are now the new disenfranchised minority um i've got to have heard this unprompted hundreds of times at this point um wow and it, and in a way that i don't think is fake i mean i don't i don't think it tracks to anything in reality but i think it's sincere i think yeah. they really believe it but they believe it because they've been made to believe it because half of our political system requires them to believe it in order to get them to come out to vote for them it's not it's not an accident it's not coincidental yeah so i'll, I'll bring up again Corey robin because i think he makes some really good um points in this regard that that this kind of um, politics of grievance is actually really like just pure politics of grievance in which there's not actually something to grieve. Right. <laughs> um, but, but it's just about the grievance itself rather than about a wrong is characteristic of reactionary conservative politics. And so, you know, it was predictable that what you have heard um, would be said because, in fact, the things that are prompting that you referred to that are prompting people to think this way are reactionary conservative ideas. Yeah. I mean, it's not—it's not sophisticated. Ultimately, it's like if people are being told something over and over and over again, some percentage of them come to believe it, and if you. You know, I mentioned before we hit record, I live on Staten Island. If you go anywhere here, it's always Fox News on. And if you just mm-hmm. don't, you just sit and watch it for a bit, the number of stories about, like, reverse immigration or, like, um, oh, sorry, reverse discrimination mm-hmm. or um, this fear that the... I'm trying to avoid the sort of dehumanizing language they use, but, yeah, fuck it, just to, like, use their language. The feeling that the country is being swamped and taken over by non-white, non-English people, that there is, to use Fox News languages and our president's language, that there is an invasion, that white people are being replaced. It's not coming out of nowhere that people believe this. They have been told it for decades now. 
And yeah, they believe it. They shouldn't believe it, but it's not. They're not. It, it, I mean, they are bad people in a sense, in that they believe bad things that are leading predictably to bad consequences. But they're not. They don't believe it because they're bad people. They believe it because they've been told to believe it. You know. Yeah, I mean, so you've done the canvassing, and I haven't. I I am not prepared to speak to people's motivations, but certainly it brings us full circle in a sense because. Um, of course, you know, now the Fox narrative has been around for a long time and many of the people who have been persuaded by it have experienced hours of hearing it every day. So I saw a thread recently, um, a Twitter thread by Dara Lind, who's an, um, was the immigration expert for Vox for a long time and is now at ProPublica, but I respect her immensely and she asked people to DM her with stories of, of have you lost a close friend or family member to Fox, <laughs> essentially? And and turns out it's a really common phenomenon that people, especially parents, they're, they're losing like parents and older relatives to Fox indoctrination. Oh, that's a terrifying thought. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a phenomenon though. I've heard people I know personally talk about about like that. You know, their parents have just been sucked in, and and their relationship will never be the same. That is absolutely terrifying. Oh, just as a final note, someone, I, oh, I forget who, um, but you know, there's recently been a rise of like a lot of online, like anti-feminist content. Yes. Um, yeah, that's a whole kind of Yes, it's, it's, a lot of it's been around for a long time, but it's quite prominent and, and getting a lot of attention now, yeah. No, I mean, this is um, all the way back to feminism itself. There's been a reactionary movement against it. Um, but there's sort of a particular online variant of it that's sprung yeah. up recently. Um, so I don't know if you've heard like the phrase being red pilled. Oh uh, yeah, you're thinking of like the Jordan Peterson, I think, school yes. on, on anti-feminism. Yes, I had a fun moment where I had a guest on who criticised Jordan Peterson, and for some reason his fans got a hold of it, and for like a week straight, every time I looked at my phone, some dingbat was telling me I was an idiot about it. I was like, all right, guys, calm down. Like this isn't. This isn't that serious. Um, but someone posted, imagine, and because apparently this has happened to people, imagine you're a woman and you've been married to a guy for 10 years and suddenly one day he comes home spouting all that crap. Yeah. And I just, apparently this has happened to people. I thought that yes, is the most- I've read this too. I can't think of where, but I've read this kind of um, personal reflection on, on, I imagine it was somebody who did not start out particularly far to the left, but was kind of nudged over to- a really strong anti-feminist point of view that was kind of totally inconsistent with the idea of having this partner. Yeah, um, that that was just the most terrifying thing I've ever heard. Like, even yeah. as a guy, like, putting myself in the shoes of a woman for a minute, I was like, I cannot imagine, I would not wish that on my worst enemy, really, yeah. you know? Absolutely. All right, we've gone on way, 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 way too long. Thank you so much for being patient with all of my questions. Um, oh, no, it was a great conversation. I so appreciate and respect the fact that you listened to the previous um, podcast and then, like, was able to come up with, you were able to come up with something um, fresh. That's, like, great. I just really appreciate that. Yeah, no worries. I always... um. I always try to do interesting things, and then sometimes I have questions that occur to me in the moment, and I get <laughs> a little lost. Um, 
Listen, so um, the book is The Political Value of Time, Citizenship, Duration, and Democratic Justice, which I assume is available from Amazon and fine booksellers everywhere. Um, is there anywhere else you'd like to direct listeners, um, follow you on Twitter, go to a website, anything like that? So um, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Elixabeth, um, A-L-I-X-A-B-E-T-H on Twitter. And um, I am really excited for December, January, right around then to release this new book with basic books on um, immigration enforcement in the United States. It does have some time-related arguments in it, but it is accessible to non-experts, um, and I hope we'll make it a timely intervention um, as we approach the the election. So look for that soon. Oh, yeah, and everyone should go follow you on Twitter, because you're fun on Twitter, I follow <laughs> you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Thank you again. That was great. Thank you so much. 